Father, we are reminded of times in your scriptures when the revelation of your holiness is made available to be viewed, to be seen and experienced by certain called individuals. And it moves on them so that they cry out, Lord, in anguish as to their unworthiness. If we could see you in all of your glorious resplendence, if we could behold you in your holiness and truth, unveiled, Lord, by the limitations of this fallen world, our own sin, and the dimension of temporal time, truly, Lord, there would be no words to describe and no way that we could sustain such a glorious revelation. Father, we, lost in our trespasses and sins, deserve not your presence, but to be banished forever. Indeed, to suffer the wrath of God on account of our breaking your holy law eternally in hell. And because of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cleansing power of his shed blood, the glorious redeeming ability of his broken flesh, we can stand, Lord, not just surviving your holiness, but in sweet communion with you, the mighty one, creator of heaven and earth, who dwells in unapproachable light and whose throne is surrounded by creatures who cry day and night and the elders who cast their thrones, worshiping, saying, holy, 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 and worthy is the lamb that was slain. I pray as the scriptures are open this morning, that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyesight, to behold the glories of our Almighty God. And that we, Lord Jesus, would be bowed low in humility and repentance where needed and light of your glorious truth. But also that you would reassure us, Lord, through your scriptures, that we can stand worthy of your presence when we stand in Christ, with his righteousness clothing us, justifying, redeeming, paying for our sins, Thank you, Lord, for the glorious opportunity we have to celebrate this as we hear your word and as we participate at your table in the very means and sustenance of eternal life. Awaken us, Lord, with a new appreciation and a deeper understanding of these glorious truths today that we might serve you more and that we might be transformed into your image and the lost might be drawn unto salvation, repentance and faith in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What an incredible privilege it is to open the scriptures together and to behold Christ revealed in his word today. I encourage you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude as we continue in our first Sunday communion service of the month in studying this great epistle. However short in length, just 25 verses, we've, I've certainly found occasion for multiple sermons to explore its depths as we mine from these pages the gold of the gospel and see how it applies to our lives with every bit of relevance as it had when it was first written. Today's sermon is entitled Faith Building. It is one of the exhortations that Jude gives us from our passage today. Indeed, to build our faith, the holy, the beloved, build themselves up in their most holy faith. They pray in the Spirit and so forth. There is equipping power within the Scriptures to reinforce us, our souls, to give us the necessary tools, implements, armaments, and weapons of war to withstand the calling of God. We see this as a unified testimony of Scripture, and Jude seeks to equip the church similarly in this passage. Thus, the aim of this morning's message is likewise to equip the hearer with faith-building resources from the Word of God. Faith-building. Jude 16 through 23. Would you stand as you're able, out of reverence through the reading of God's Word today, and behold these few verses in your hearing and the depth in which, that, which they contain. Jude, again, 16 through 23, here is the word of God. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. 
But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Just to remind you, the overarching theme of our sermon series in Jude is to realize that Jude was written for us and for the first audience to equip us to oppose, to stand against anyone who would diminish or deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ, which is the theme of the doxology and the final verse of Jude, that would be Jude 25. These days... As in the days of Jude, discernment may be the least popular, I suggest, but most needed of all spiritual disciplines to stay true to the faith once and for all delivered to, the, delivered to us in the Holy Scriptures. Again, Jude has said in verse 2 or verse 3, as a reason for writing, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What do we contend for and what do we stand against? The answers to these questions require discernment. That is, the ability to distinguish the ungodly from the holy, the right from the wrong, what God has spoken from what the devil has twisted. So in this way, discernment is necessary. Jude's expectations, exhortations, excuse me, to his believing readers anticipate the very challenges that we face in our day which require biblical understanding, wisdom, and vigilance, as we, like the early saints, seek to likewise contend for the faith. Verses 16 through 23, our primary passage today, our last sermon drew from these verses as well, and future messages will likewise draw distinctions. These verses draw distinctions between the ungodly and the holy. The ungodly are identified with a list of sinful attributes which characterize their faithlessness. While on the other hand, the holy are exhorted to stand against them by applying their faith in key areas. So what I've done for this sermon and the last one was to arrange these, that which describes the ungodly and that which describes the holy in two columns. And you find roughly a balanced a list there. And so we've taken another two of these to compare this morning. So imagine in your mind, on the one hand, the column on the one side of the page, the ungodly are described as grumblers and malcontents following their own sinful desires. We covered that in our last message. Furthermore, they are loudmouth boasters, according to Jude, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We'll cover those two attributes of the ungodly today. He goes on, they are scoffers, following ungodly passions, they cause divisions, they are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But then on the other side, we have in the second column, those who oppose them. They are the holy. The holy who are beloved and exhorted to the following, to remember the predictions of the apostles, to build themselves up in their most holy faith. We'll cover that this morning. To pray in the Spirit, likewise, a theme for this message. And then it continues. They are to keep themselves in the love of God, to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus, to extend mercy to those in doubt, to save others by snatching them from the fire, and to show mercy with fear, hating even garments stained by the flesh. So as Jude draws these distinctions and sets up these contrasts, he's equipping us with tools for discernment, to recognize and to tell the difference between the ungodly and the holy. Today, we consider loudmouth boasting as opposed to faith building and favoritism to gain advantage as opposed to praying in the Spirit. In addition, today's sermon references examples from the greater context of Scripture. As you're able, you might put a thumb in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. We'll use the prayer of Hezekiah and the mockery of the official from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, as an example of the difference between loudmouth boasting and faith building. 
So these passages, or this follows the pattern that Jude gives in his epistle. Jude models what we might call whole counsel of God integration and understanding gospel concepts. Though his letter is very short, he references multiple locations in the Old Testament where the truths and the principles that he espouses are illustrated. So seek to follow his lead this morning in one or two examples from the greater portion of Scripture. That's our introduction. Let me give you a heading which has continued from our last message. Jude emphasizes distinctions between the following. Number one, loudmouth boasters versus faith building. Secondly, Jude emphasizes distinctions between advantage gaining favoritism versus prayer in the Holy Spirit. That's the basic framework of our sermon this morning. Two major points and some application and examples underneath. First of all, Jude draws a distinction. He points out the differences. He highlights for the purposes of building our discernment, our discernment the difference between loudmouth boasting of the ungodly and faith building, those who build up their most holy faith, those who are true believers. So let, let us ask this first question then. What does ungodly loudmouth boasting look like? Well, as we see in the immediate context here, turn back to the beginning of his letter, and verse 4 gives us some insight. In describing the ungodly, Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The ungodly, in their loudmouth boasting, what do they look like? Well, there's a prideful self-assurance that they exhibit. Boasting. What is boasting? It's bragging. It's speaking of yourself, exalting yourself uh, above who you truly are in many cases, or making yourself the center of your world or your universe or the attention of others. Loudmouth boasting is a self-promotion, taking every opportunity to boost oneself, one's self-esteem, one's self-care, one's self-identity, and to do so with a prideful self-assurance, uh, something rooted not in the Word of God, not outside of ourselves, but internal to us. This is what loudmouth boasting looks like. In the case of those who Jude was warning the church against, they demonstrated, they exhibited this loudmouth boasting in their sensuality, denying their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It is a loudmouth boaster who rejects the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus, who says, I am my own master, and I will not submit to a Lord. They boast of self-sufficiency when they say, I will not submit to a higher moral authority over me. They boast of their own self-importance when they say, I have better ideas or we, as a collective people and society and culture, have better ideas today than the outdated ancient musings of the authors of what some people call the scriptures. This is the heart of unbelief. It is loudmouth boasting. It's denying what God has said, inarguably and unalterably. It does not change, and it will win every debate for all time. The scriptures say that the Lord, and therefore His Word, as we've studied uh, recently are the same yesterday, today, and forever. But those who deny such a thing, they boast that they have a different standard, better ideas, or that the progression of their thought has advanced beyond what the ancient and crude understandings of reality are. These are those who take occasion to pervert what God has said and, and instead to boast in their own self-interest and pursue their uh, desires, their sinful desires and sensuality, and deny, in so doing, their master and Lord who bought them. Denial of the universal moral authority rooted in the Scriptures is, according to uh, one word, antinomianism. Nomianism, the law, anti-against. Denying that there is a standard of righteousness in the Scriptures which abides and to which we are held accountable is a term in theology called antinomianism. What we see today is a brash antinomianism. We see that people might abide by a law or uh, promote some idea, and everyone lives according to a standard, but if they promote one outside of the law, that is also 
uh, form of antinomianism. That is to say, they're anti the law of God. This, this takes the form of many different expressions of people in their ideas becoming a law unto themselves or taking the sense of the uh, uh, popular ideas of culture as the new standard for how we should act and interact with one another. This is the brash antinomianism that loudmouth uh, loud boasters indulge. In so doing, they seek to justify sensuality, denying that they must submit and surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in order for them to truly be called believers. No one ought to bear the name of Jesus Christ. No one ought to bear the name Christian. No one truly does unless they submit to Jesus Christ as their Master and Lord. Jude, in his day and in our day, there were many who tried to co-opt the church and try to identify as Christians, or try to claim allegiance to, or some association with Jesus Christ and the institution of the church. But they, in their heart, their lifestyle, their confession, their understanding, their Bible twisting, they denied that he was truly their master and Lord. And in so doing, they were brash antinomians. They were boasting with a loud mouth boldness of their own prideful self-assurance. They were endorsing a mindset and a lifestyle that boasted moral license. I have permission to do what I want because I justify it this way or that way and without, without regard to the word of God. And in this, they were living as a law unto themselves. No area of life and no individual is ever a law unto himself. Everyone in every area of life must be submitted to the Lord and the master, Jesus. And this is what true holiness looks like. But loudmouth boasters, they do not submit. They instead, uh, they instead uh, trust and rely on themselves. There's a greater context, context example that I find fascinating in Isaiah. And this is that Isaiah 36 reference I mentioned earlier. Turn there with me as you're able. Let's hear what loudmouth boasting looked, looked like in this context. A little setting for you, or to set the stage in Isaiah 36, 1, we read the following. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, a godly king of Israel, Sennacherib, an ungodly king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And, verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. So that is a name in the original language or transliterated from ancient uh, Semitic languages of a cupbearer, an official, in this case, it seemed to be like the propaganda minister, representative and ambassador of Sennacherib. So the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduct, conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So we have an invading army, and their operation has been successful thus far in so much as they have taken... Uh, two cities occupied them. And then this propaganda minister from this Assyrian king, this warring enemy nation, comes and stands with his strong army and the cities that he's conquered, and he's about to announce something to the people. So we pick up on his propaganda as the chapter continues to unfold. Note verse 13 and following. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he, will be able to, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the, of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Let each one of you, then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one will drink the water of his own cistern. This, by the way, is language of prosperity and peace. Don't follow your king. Look, we just conquered two of his cities. He's a weakling. Follow our greater ideas, our greater authority, and you will be able to thrive under the lordship of the great Sennacherib of this uh, powerful conquering nation. So this is the message. Verse 17, 
until I come and take you away to a land unlike your own, or a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Harmath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Uh, who among all of these gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Do you hear the mocking tone? You see, the unbeliever in his short-sighted apparent victory is proven a loudmouth boaster. God has sovereign plans, and he allows the wicked to take a city every once in a while. And there are those who prosper for a short time, but as the old adage goes, the harder or the, the, the higher they rise, the harder they fall. And this would certainly be the case of the enemies of God and his people, the Assyrians under Sennacherib, despite the lying, loudmouth boasting, the propaganda that of the Rabshakeh, this official who is bragging that they were able to subdue these cities and belittling the trust, trust in the Almighty God. Now, this presented a real test for the people of God, did it not? Because the apparent power and the apparent authority would all, just if looking at the situation, would seem to lie, the upper hand would seem to be with this king of Assyria, Sennacherib's conquering army. What would Hezekiah do? And what would the people do? Would they be susceptible to this loudmouth boasting? Would they give in to the propaganda that since the majority is ungodly and seems to thrive, you, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them? The only way for the church to grow is to capitulate and compromise with this culture, is to leave the fundamentalism of this traditional Christianity aside and, just, and, and uh, adopt the progressive values that wickedly have come like a loudmouth boasting propaganda minister to the doorstep of the church and say, whoa, you think that Jesus will come again? How long has it been? Peter writes about this. Jude echoes the same sentiments. And this is nothing new. The people of God have faced this kind of pressure all the way back in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah did not respond by capitulating or granting but instead, he went to the house of the Lord. We'll read about that in a little bit. Nevertheless, I think we can relate to this heart and attitude that the world wields against the church. Often, it is this loudmouth boasting of culture that places pressure on us to leave our Lord and Master and to submit to another authority. After all, you're just a pitiful minority, and it doesn't seem like the kingdom of Christ is very effective when the world seems to be ruled by the wickedness that's so popular in the majority culture. Nevertheless, we are to stand not on the circumstances of any given moment, but in faith that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, though he might allow an enemy to exercise some temporal advantage, he will and ultimately has subdued them. And there is coming a day of great judgment and accounting. The test is to believe that and to stand in the meantime. In our modern day, there are many examples of loudmouth boasting. I think of this when I consider the legislative agenda represented in the politics of Minnesota right now. Even national stories have picked up the, uh, you know, have drawn attention to the situation in our state where the so-called trifecta, the House, the Senate, and the governorship are all owned by one party, or at least the majority in these they're taking great advantage of this trifecta situation to pass the legislative agenda of a progressive culture that wants to turn our state into a sanctuary area for those who deny biblical created order truths, even as basic as what is a man and what is a woman. And they proceed with a brash, self-assured uh, self boldness in their loudmouth boasting to pass legislation that gives virtually unfettered access to the slaughtering of the unborn in the womb, announcing that their virtues are, all have to do with killing of the innocent before they have a chance to take a breath. Abortion, the holy sacrament of these, the wicked loudmouth boasters. And we could go on and on. Similarly, societies uh, and the priorities of our popular culture uh, proclaim 
that we, it's time for us to celebrate our evil and to parade our sin. And a whole month is dedicated uh, to the so-called LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, list of letters to the alphabet of the indefinite self-identity of every perverse idea that comes into the heart of man. But ultimately, underneath it all is simply a declaration of rebellion. Jesus is not my master and not my Lord. And we're going to celebrate this with a pride parade in the streets. What is this? This is loud mouth boasting. This is those who refuse to bow before the master and lordship of Jesus and declare themselves as a self-assured, self-identified individual who stands not under the authority of a lord and savior over them, but instead on their own merits and preferences. This is what we face. I was listening to a podcast this week, and an individual said, I find myself growing more religious. And someone questioned him, well, what does that mean? Are you... Following any particular religion, he said, no, I'm getting in touch with God without the middleman. And that phrase struck me. I'm getting in touch with God without the middleman. And I couldn't help but think of how rebellious and wrong that that statement was when you think of Jesus as the mediator or middleman between God and man. Can you get in touch with God? Can you have any meaning in life? Can you have any hope of salvation? Can you have any assurance of, the ni- of what will happen beyond or uh, any assurance of peace or safety or security of that which is beyond your control or in the next life without Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. There's no getting in touch with the Lord. There's no spirituality. There's no hope for salvation. There's no assurance or peace to be had. All of it is a delusion unless Jesus Christ stands between and at the cost of his blood has propitiated, has satisfied the judgment that is worthy of your sin and then intercedes forever as your high priest at the right hand of the Father pleading your case at the cost of his blood. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of our hope. Yet these days, the loudmouth boasters deny such things from these seemingly innocuous, passing, dismissive phrases to the institutional organization of rebellion that seeks to throw off the bonds and the chains of the Almighty and declare themselves God in His place. The self-affirmation identity and self-aggrandizement is amplified by our social media culture, and it's running rampant like a disease that has metastasized and gone septic in our culture, and we're facing a real challenge. The loudmouth boasting of the Rabshakeh all around us says, Jesus Christ is not Lord, we rule the day, join us in our pride celebration. What will we do? As they signal their virtues uh, so proudly and celebrate this iniquity, we might feel small, insecure, and defeated. But this is, where we, this is why we need to turn to the Word of God. Hezekiah certainly felt the pressure of the invading armies. The people of God were shaking in their boots. They tried to get the Rabshakeh not to speak these things even in their own language because they were afraid it would spread a lack of morale among the troops. And I'm sure it did for many. But the Lord, in the end, had the last laugh, and he ruled the day. And looking at these passages of Scripture builds our confidence that in spite of the challenges that we face in the moment, the Lord is sovereign. What does holy faith building look like, we might ask? So we go back to our primary text. You know, in the wake of these great high... um, just the suffocating pressure of the circumstances that surround us, and loudmouth boasting. What is an antidote for this kind of thing? What does building ourselves up in the most holy faith look like? Whereas, uh, Jude says in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. On the other hand, verse 20 says, you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. In the immediate context, Jude references the gospel itself. Verse 2, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Fight for it. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he says, furthermore, that this faith is that which was affirmed by the anointed and commissioned apostles. Verse 17, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So be submissive and sincerely loyal to the message of hope and faith and the true gospel that was revealed to you in all the pages of the New Testament. 
which confirmed and clarified the universal testimony of Scripture all the way from the days of Hezekiah and Sennacherib to our own. Last week, Gene preached for us from Romans chapter 3, one of those gospel-centric, sweetened and condensed proclamations of the glories of Christ crucified for us. And so this week in our family worship, we took the occasion to emphasize three words to the kids over and over. Redemption, justification, and propitiation. Do you know what those words mean? If you do, that is an incredible source of understanding. How do you build yourself up in your most holy faith? Remember that you were redeemed, that there was a price to buy you back from certain death. And that price was so excruciatingly high that you could never pay it except by an eternity in hell. But Jesus has paid it for you. As you think about the cost of your redemption, even displayed here at the Lord's table, it will build your faith. Justified. My grandfather always used to say, and if we've taught it to our kids now, what does justified mean? Think of this, just as if I'd never sinned. And I love that simple phrase because it is true that when one is justified, he is declared innocent by a legal authority. We are declared innocent before the judge of judges, God, the perfect holy one. He says, you are justified and holy on the basis of what? The righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, sovereign Savior. We are justified. What does propitiation mean? It's a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. It is the price of that redemption because Jesus died as a propitiation. The price was paid to buy us back. As you think about these things, even at the Lord's table, they will build your faith. These are ideas that are more powerful than the lies of a propagandistic culture that is celebrating their loudmouth boasting that I have a better idea than Christianity. No, you don't. You have no assurance of your soul's eternal rest and security. You have no propitiation, though you have many perverse attempts. The blood of the innocence that you shed and your wicked false atonement of abortion could never save a single soul. Instead, it stands as debt and condemnation against a culture that declares that a woman's right to destroy that new life within her is a virtue and a right. No, it is not. It is evidence of sin that runs so deep that we would seek to justify murder and call it virtuous. It stands as a record and testimony against us until we return to Christ, turn to him and recognize that he was killed for sins as egregious as that and others, and worse. This is how we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Think of, uh, let's turn back to Isaiah 37, 36 and 37, and see how Hezekiah built himself up in his holy faith. And again, the context is he's facing this threat from the invading army. And so how will he respond? Will he lead the people by faith, or will he lead them in humanistic terms? Will he turn to the Lord and his promises, or will he turn to other tools at his disposal, however weak and ineffective they may seem at the moment? Well, Hezekiah turns to the Lord. As we see in chapter 37, the record continues in verses 1 and 2. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, so this is the loudmouth boasting of the Rabshakeh, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. So four things to note, at least. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went into the house of the Lord, and sent for a prophet. These are faith-building steps. First, the tearing of the clothes. This is representative, and sackcloth as well. This is representative of repentance. It is the opposite of loudmouth boasting. You know, a loudmouth boasting king, he wears his royal robes, and he looks at his vestments, and he sees the great accomplishments, and he acts like the Rabshakeh Sennacherib and says, who do you think you are? Look at everything that I have done, what I have accomplished. And he finds great confidence in these royal vestments that set him apart as dignified. The people must bow to his will. The people are dependent on his kindness. So what does he do with those robes? Does he trust in them? Does he flaunt them? Does he go out and strut and say, have you seen these robes and my vestments? Do you know who I am? 
Does he trust in himself and his own exploits and the power of his kingdom to save him in this moment? No, he tears his clothes. A gesture of humility and desperation, repentance. And he replaces them, not with the proud vestments of a loudmouth boaster, but with sackcloth. Be kind of like wearing cardboard from your last Amazon package today. You know, common materials that would put you, imagine a king wearing a potato sack or cardboard for, for his clothing. It's a humiliating thing. It would look absurd and ridiculous, but it's a gesture of humility and recognizing a desperation and repenting of trusting in yourself or the power of your sword to save you. I'm utterly dependent on you. I am a destitute, impoverished slave in sackcloth unless my Lord fights on my behalf. Hezekiah repents. He covers himself with sackcloth and then he goes to the house of the Lord. This is the place of communion. We don't have time to turn there, but in your own time, perhaps this week, study a bit in 1 Kings 8, 33-34. At Solomon's dedication of the temple, he talks about a situation just like this. And he prays that this temple would represent a refuge and a place of clarity and hope if God's people should face an invading enemy. And so Hezekiah, what does he do? He listens to the word of God. He remembers the prayer of Solomon dedicating the temple. And he goes to the place of assured communion and reunion, reconciliation with the holy God. And he goes there to plead on behalf of this situation. This is a little bit related to our communion table today. When we come to the communion table, we recognize with the sackcloth of our own awareness of our inability to save ourselves and our sin that once separated us from the Lord that we don't deserve to be in the house of God. In order for Hezekiah to step into the house of God, just like any priest, like anyone, a sacrifice had to be provided in order for him to be in good standing as God revealed himself to his servant there. We too have a sacrifice, saints, when we come into the house of God. We come in with the sackcloth of our uh, sin and our wickedness, and we understand that someone must die in our place to secure our entry into the Lord's good graces. We recognize at his table that it is the shed blood of Jesus and his broken body that gives us the right, gives us entry into the holy places, as it were. Jesus has gone before, and so we follow him in our Savior, our sacrifice. Hezekiah, then he ascends for the prophet. So what do we see? We see repentance. We see communion. We see revelation, seeking hope in the word of God. And when the prophet comes, he comes as the authoritative voice of God's promises and covenant with his people. The only source of true reassurance in spite of any enemy we might face. And then finally, Hezekiah builds himself up by prayerful worship. And we hear his heart expressed in verses 14 and following. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord." The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah builds himself up in his most holy faith by this prayer, and other means, this prayerful worship, ascribing glory to the Lord. That may be hard for him to believe in the moment that God is as powerful as he confesses in this prayer, but he has called for the prophet to hear the word of God. He has looked past the short-sighted circumstances that might inspire fear in the flesh. He is confessing that God is glorious. No doubt he's remembering how God delivered his people one time, who were slaves for four centuries in Egypt, and led them across that Red Sea, parting it in two great heaps as they went unto the promised land, and using that same instrument to drown their enemies who would pursue him. 
No doubt as he thought about the Lord and his exploits and redemptive history, his heart swelled with faith and courage as he ascribed glory to the Lord. He appealed to the glory of the Lord. He said, on the basis of this glory, save us, O Lord. Not for us, ultimately speaking. Not because we are so special. Not because we are to be featured as the chief you know, center of the redemptive universe as if God's love for us was the primary feature to be displayed in salvation. But no, there's a higher call still that Hezekiah recognizes, and we ought to too. God saves us, yes, and he loves us, but he does so for his glory and namesake, that his kingdom and his renown and his exploits and his glory might be magnified when he saves his people. Hezekiah understood and affirmed this. He went on to express a petition a request for salvation, and that, and committed himself implicitly and the people to glorify the Lord when he answered the prayer. Save us now, O Lord, our God, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is what holy faith building looks like. We see it in the context of the gospel. We see it in the context of Hezekiah's example. And as the story continues, there's a glorious aftermath. At the end of this chapter, verse 36, we read this. And the angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the people, when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adamelech, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Rarat, Asherhad and his son reigned in his place. So that's the aftermath. As we turn back to our passage in Jude, we're reminded of, of uh, incidents just like this, or Jude reminds us of incidents like, th like this in his own faith-building exhortation, verse 14. But also, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Has this happened in the past? Yes. The Lord came to the armies of Sennacherib with his ten thousands of holy ones, so to speak, and his angel armies slew the unbeliever, the wicked, the enemy of his people. And one fell swoop that night, the bodies too many to count the next morning, strewn upon the battlefield to the glory of God alone. God had executed judgment on the ungodly in this incident, incident reminding the people of God that he is sovereign and he is Lord. And so how do we build ourselves up in the most holy faith when we are surrounded by enemies? Remember what God did, how he laid low the king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. How he laid low so many of his enemies, all of them in fact, and how he defeated the greatest enemy of all, death itself, and our sin on Calvary. And he did it through unconventional means, to say the least. Something that counterintuitive to the human mind, through the death of Christ, sin was killed, so to speak. And there's coming a judgment in the future. And this day of the Lord, when it comes, will be absolutely decisive. All his enemies will be demonstrated to be his footstool. And those who placed their faith in him and took the occasion of trial to build themselves up, reminding themselves of his power, his majesty, his dominion, his authority, his glory, they will stand with him when our conquering Lord delivers the last word to every one of his enemies. Second major point this morning, there's an advantage gaining favoritism that the ungodly pursue. Meanwhile, the holy... They pray in the Holy Spirit. And you notice in both cases, by the way, these contrasts, uh, advantage gaining favoritism. The ungodly, they seek to gain advantage through wicked means, manipulation, playing favorites you know, this, uh, in this individual or that, or taking advantage of the circumstances to use them as leverage to their advantage without regard to what is right and just and true, without regard to the law of God. But they do so to get a leg up, to gain some advantage, to get an, uh, an edge, the upper hand. But the holy do not do this. How do they seek to better their condition? They pray in the Holy Spirit, like Hezekiah. They take the posture of humility and desperation, 
and throw themselves upon the mercy of God. Rather than trying to manipulate the circumstances at hand, moral law notwithstanding, to the best possible outcome to serve their interests, they cry to the Lord, without you, I am lost and broken. Without you, I am desperate and doomed. But as the Lord answers and at, uh, in, in that day when his 10,000 come to execute judgment on the ungodly, then the prayers of the righteous are vindicated. But it's tempting in the meantime to gain advantage by other ways, is it not? What does ungodly favoritism look like? Well, the context in the New Testament, primarily I would say there was two, and the early church tended to show partiality, that means to favor some over others, in two ways. The partiality in the early church tended to privilege the rich or the well-to-do. Uh, James 2, 1 through 6, uh, there's an example of this that James exhorts against. Um, in, in his instructions, it reads much like uh, wisdom literature. James says this, Brothers, show no partiality to one. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have, have you uh, not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, we are supposed to distinguish, draw distinctions, discernment according to God's terms, not our own. We're not supposed to privilege the rich over the poor just because they might have, uh, practically speaking, more power at their disposal to help us or to fund our projects and so forth. So this is a problem in the early church. The church tended to favor those who were rich, also those who were ethnically Jewish. An example of this would be in Galatians 2, 11 through 16, where Paul there exhorts Peter saying, uh, you're acting differently because of the perceived piety of religious traditionalism. In other words, you're denying the truth of the gospel, that we are on equal footing and plain before the Lord. And the precious blood that Jesus sheds to save a Jew or to save a Gentile places everyone on equal footing before the throne. And so we are to acknowledge as much. So this is a couple examples of what ungodly favoritism looked like in those days. In these days, similarly, it might be uh, this favoritism might express itself as hope invested in high-profile conversions. A couple of years ago, I remember, has it been that long, when Kanye West professed a conversion experience? And it was hard not to get excited about that as a Christian because you think of how popular his music was and what a center of popular culture and uh, that he had been, and how far-reaching that testimony might go. But today, I don't know where he stands, and certainly his confession has not proven to be consistent or clear by any means. But it's tempting to invest a lot of hope in this kind of thing, a high-profile conversion, as if the gospel would advance when we get our own cultural influencers. Isn't that what people pay attention to these days? And so let's pray for a celebrity to get saved and really get the word out. But this could be an example of partiality, privileging those who are well-positioned in culture, holding out hope that they will accomplish the Great Commission, and then we, in the meantime, kind of sit back on our laurels and are more complacent than we ought to be. Oftentimes, these days, we project righteousness or saving hope onto important people or movements in the short term whether they be political or social or, other word, or otherwise, uh, we sometimes invest a lot of hope in leaders of this kind at the cost sometimes of double standards. We contrast this with the sort of quote-unquote high-profile status of one like the Apostle Paul. He was an important and influential man, but notice the pattern of the gospel through Paul. It came by, not by a, a sort of cultural heroism, but instead by suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. His calling, as is ours and ours, every true believer, is marked by suffering and consistency over time and faithfulness in spite of what little traction we may seem to be gaining. This is much more a part and parcel of our calling than the sort of triumphant cultural heroism we might wish for. Nevertheless, 
Paul's legacy is a hero of sorts. It continues today. But it continues not by virtue of his human exceptionalism, but by virtue of Christ in him. What was Paul's confession? Was he a loudmouth boaster? No. He said, I am the chief of sinners. And what I stand to gain or could boast in, by way of my great learning and influence, an able mind, you could say, I count that all lost, rubbish, dung, that I might know Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. For him, uh, for Paul, to know Christ, even death itself was gain. And he determined to boast nothing of himself or his abilities, but to boast in Christ alone. So we need to put aside this ungodly tendency towards favoritism to look to or invest in other means than what the Lord has prescribed for hope and advancing the kingdom of God. And as we do so, we will, we will see in due time how God's means and God's ways are rewarded by answered prayer, sometimes in surprising moments, in surprising ways, against all odds, in order, like, Hezekiah, like in Hezekiah's day, that he might get the glory. So on the other hand, as opposed to this, and in contrast, what does prayer in the Holy Spirit look like? Again, in our text in Jude, we are exhorted, according to Jude, to build ourselves up in the most holy faith and to pray in the Holy Spirit. But you, beloved, verse 20, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. In the immediate context, I suggest that prayer in the Holy Spirit is praying according to the order revealed in Scripture, and it's, to, it's prayer from the heart of legitimate faith. And there's a great example of prayer in the Holy Spirit right in our text today. And it would be the two verses of closing doxology in this epistle. Listen to Jude as he prays in the Holy Spirit, as it were, in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, would be to Jesus Christ, of course, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. An example, I submit, of praying in the Holy Spirit. Another great example, Hezekiah's prayer, which we just covered. As Hezekiah repents and puts on that sackcloth and he goes to the place where a sufficient sacrifice in order to restore communion with the Lord is offered in the temple. According to the promise and according to the word of God, that this is a place where you seek refuge when you are at death's doorstep. And then he cries for the prophet, the one commissioned to give the word of God. And as he listens and submits to these God's means, he prays out a prayer appealing, not to his own strength, but to the glory of God, turning from his sins and repenting on behalf of the people, no doubt, and spreading that letter in the house of the Lord and asking that God would intervene for his glory. Imagine that moment, if you would, for a minute. You know, in those days, I'm sure letters from the Rabshakeh would be written on some animal skin. They called it vellum. And then in a scroll and a seal, right? So Hezekiah goes into the temple, and as I imagine, he unrolls. It says he spread out that letter before the Lord. So imagine it. I'll bet you he put it on the ground. He spread out that scroll, that letter of loudmouth boasting, of uh, basically declaring authority over God and his people. Perhaps he put a paperweight, you know, four stones on the corners. By the time his prayer is done, I imagine one foot on that letter and his countenance and hands lifted to heaven saying, give us victory that your name might be glorified and this your enemy would be placed under your feet and the feet of your people. And this prayer in the Holy Spirit was honored and answered. And God did intervene. And to the praise of his great name and to the assurance and salvation of his people, he slaughtered 185,000 of their enemies in that day. Think of other examples of prayer in Scripture. In Matthew 6, 5 through 13, Jesus distinguishes prayer, the Lord's Prayer we call it, from the loudmouth boasting of the Pharisee. The Pharisee prays to be seen in man, he prays, to signal his own virtue. Very popular concept these days. But this is not the prayer of one who prays in the Holy Spirit. Instead, who do they honor first? They ascribe glory to the Lord. Affirm his, his holiness. I am nothing. You are everything. Hallowed be your name. That helpful acronym that some use to describe prayer acts. Adoration. 
I adore you, Lord. Confession, I'm a sinner. Thanksgiving, thank you for saving me. Supplication, these are my requests. A helpful framework. A biblical model of prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. One last example. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. A popular chapter, we think of this, of course, with respect to the armor of God. That famous example and analogy that Paul uses to be equipped for battle. Um, all of the armaments that he endorses there. I'll find it. Go eat potato chips. That's what my grandpa used to say. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, So we get to Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We have this admonition in verse 1. The admonitions continue going along the way here. It's sort of comprehensive instruction for the church. And he closes his comments. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he just continues, we often pause there, but notice in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert and with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is armor-clad prayer, if you will. What does prayer in the Holy Spirit look like according to Paul? Well, it looks like praying according to truth and righteousness, and the gospel, and faith, salvation, and the word of God. Praying in the context of these realities and these revealed truths. We are to be in this this attitude of prayer, alert and persevering, praying vigilantly without ceasing for saints and and for the equipping of ministers with the gospel, that they might have clarity and boldness. And as we think of this, we pray that we, as faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ, might be equipped, and ministers who are called to take the pulpit in churches like this, likewise, would be bold and speak as they ought from the Scriptures, and to do so in the context of the armaments that Paul lays out. These are examples of prayer in the Holy Spirit. It's the opposite of manipulation to gain advantage trusting in yourself and your own schemes for hope in the future and to gain the upper hand in the moment. Prayer in the Holy Spirit focuses our attention on who God is and who we aren't. We aren't able to save and we don't deserve to stand in His presence, but because of Christ alone, we have audience with the Father and by His mighty hand, by His outstretched arm, and by these armaments that Christ is pictured as wearing again in the book of Isaiah, There is a mighty hope of salvation that ultimately will defeat our enemies and and, uh, render us in the good graces of the Lord on that day when He comes with His ten thousands in mighty judgment. So again, these are keys of faith building that we see affirmed by Jude and echoed by the rest of Scripture. So equip yourselves, saints, I would exhort you in the words of Jude with faith building resources from the Bible so that in the days when we have difficulties that surround us, we might stand, building up our most holy faith by remembering these things that are revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures and by praying regularly. And even here as we gather at uh, 9.30 in the morning before service starts to pray as we see these examples in the Holy Spirit. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the mighty assurance of your holy gospel and your forever word. As we open these pages, we recognize that oftentimes our fears, our anxieties, our day-to-day concerns, our complaining betrays a small faith. 
We need faith-building, Lord Jesus, tools and resources so that we might stand in a day when we are challenged. We need better discernment to tell the difference between that which is ungodly and that which is holy. So I pray that you would encourage and equip us, Lord, to avail ourselves of the resources in your word. We pray also if there are any in the hearing of this message that fall into that category squarely of the ungodly, because they have not as of yet, like Hezekiah, taken on the sackcloth of repentance and faith, acknowledging that they don't deserve to stand in your presence without a sufficient sacrifice. I pray that they would turn from their sins and turn to Christ, their Savior, and soon join us at this table this morning when we celebrate the cost of our redemption, Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins, who shed blood and broken body, satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.